Hi listeners, I'm Izzy, my pronouns are they and them. Welcome to the Critical Conversations for Social Work podcast. This is Joella. Before we start, we'd like to acknowledge the country that we're recording this episode on today and pay our respects to the Turrbal and Yagara peoples and their elders, past, present and emerging by committing to always remembering that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome everyone to the Critical Conversations for Social Work podcast. My name is Jean Carruthers, my pronouns are she, her. And firstly, I would like to acknowledge the First Nations people of this land, the Turrbal and Yuggera people, pay respects to elders past, present and emerging. I would also like to acknowledge that this land is and always was Aboriginal land. As a non-Indigenous parent of two no, now adult Aboriginal sons who are Gubby Gubby or Cubby Cubby people. I am honoured to be part of this conversation that supports awareness of Indigenous perspectives in social work and human services and recognise that as a non-Indigenous woman and a social worker and social work educator, um, I have a part to play in reconciling the impacts of colonisation, dispossession, child removal as part of not only our country's history here in Australia, but also part of the history of social work and human services, as Dr. Deb Duthie mentions in the previous podcast. I would also like to recognise the First Nations listeners with us for this episode. So today I'm here with a wonderful crew member, Joella Warkeel, and we are going to unpack some of the ideas from the previous podcast that featured Dr. Deb Duffy and Alicia and bring some of our own stories and insights to the conversation. Uh, it's so great to be here with you, Joella. How are you today? Good. Thank you, Jean. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> Yes. It's a bit cold today, though, I have to say. It's yes. very cold, yes. <laughs> yes. Although we did walk up quite a lot of stairs to get here, and I'm, f I'm feeling a little bit warmer in this room and um, did have to take my jacket off because <laughs> I was a little bit sweaty when we got here. So, yeah. So... We're going to have a conversation about um, Dr. Deb's episode with Alicia, um, uh, which is the part A episode of this um, sort of this part of the series, I guess you could say. So what would you like to tell the listeners about you first and what drew you to this particular conversation? Okay, um, well, I will introduce myself yes. first uh, for the listeners. So my name is Joella. I am a very proud First Nations and South Sea Islander woman. Um, I was born and raised on Durumbal country, which is Rockhampton, central Queensland. But my mob are the Yudinji people from far north Queensland. Um, and my families were taken from Pentecost and Ambram Islands in Vanuatu. Um, yeah, so that's uh, my cultural heritage and that's where I come from um, but I am also as you said a crew member 
Uh, so I am part of the project group that are working on this project, which is Critical Conversations for Social Work this semester. Um, and I suppose essentially what drew me to doing this episode today is that I um, enjoyed Deb's and Alicia's conversation about Indigenous pedagogies and the idea of um, critical pedagogies itself and how those two interrelate um, mm. and what, um, I suppose, nuanced ideas come from that. I think it's really interesting. So Yeah, yeah. wonderful. <laughs> and thank you for sharing about your heritage um, and about your cultural background and everything. I know um, from the conversation with Deb and what I got from the conversation with Deb, um, I really did notice how Deb starts off with her own background and her story. Um, she talked about where how she came from both um, the Waka Waka people in Sherberg, but prior to that acknowledges her heritage in Tennant Creek, uh, the Ramungu people. And just the way she spoke about her grandmother being removed and taken from Baramba Aboriginal Reserve. And so when we hear these stories, um, like I think it's really good for students who are listening especially or practitioners who are listening to recognise that like these these stories are from people we know as well. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and it's not just something you read in a textbook. It's something that, that um, is part of people's lives and um, and touches on them and um, on their on their experiences in our current um, situation, not just historically. You know? Yeah, yeah. I think it um, almost makes it more real when we speak to those stories that we hold as First Nations people and families. I think it is definitely important um, for students and practitioners to consider the historical context of being a social worker or human services practitioner um, and consider also the power, as mm. Deb mentioned in the previous episode, that we hold as those practitioners. Um, yep. yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And even the ways that um, in the episode Deb was talking about how some students say, oh, well, um, I'm not going to work with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people because that's not the area that I want to work in. But the fact that 3% of the population of Brisbane, so and that's yeah. the largest, there's more Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Brisbane than there is in other major cities. And she was kind of saying, you know, it doesn't matter if you are not working particularly in that area, you are going to be um, sort of supporting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in your yeah. work. And so therefore it's really important to have an understanding of um, sort of colonisation, dispossession, um, child removal, all of those kinds of things, and also the ways that Indigenous perspectives can be valued. Um, so it's not about um, thinking about Aboriginal people as a deficit. It's mm -hmm. thinking of what can we learn from Aboriginal culture, from um, from the the peoples and their experiences, um, and the ways that um, that colonisation has impacted and created trauma and those sorts of things, and how can we learn from um, people who have had those experiences, so that we can be more reflective practitioners, I guess you could say, and recognise if you are not an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person that. Um, we need to actually critically reflect on the assumptions that we might make. Yeah, yeah. And I think 
um, Deb does a great job of speaking to that reflection in the previous episode as well, um, when she mentioned a couple of times how vital that self-reflection and um, critical lens to use with um, Indigenous pedagogies and Indigenous perspectives is. Um, Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I know like when she was talking about the students um, on uh, in the Sherberg project yeah. and how critical reflection um, was part of the process of them working with community in Sherberg. Um, and I've just got some, some comments here about it was really important from Deb's perspective that they reflect on their values and beliefs um, uh, re- also looking at the stereotypes or what I would call the embedded assumptions or the social conditioning that we have from a history of the ways that um, uh, this country has been colonised and things like that. So that conditioning and for me as a, um, a non-Indigenous woman, I need to be aware of that conditioning all the time. And so my process of critical reflection is really important for the ways that I have um, relationships with my students, for example, and, um, and, and ensuring that I'm working uh, anti-oppressively in my practice and empowering the students that I work with. She also, and a comment that we had in a discussion with our crew, there was a, a comment about not being a sympathetic vacationer. Yeah. <laughs> Did, do yep. you remember, do you know what that means? Um, I think it was, we were talking about, I suppose, um, having a more taking a more genuine position, I suppose, mm-hmm. in, in that reflection and positioning ourselves um, to critically reflect as well. Um, I think the, the aspect of being critical is really important yeah. as well, and that comes through from the way Deb talks about reflection. Um, and I suppose it is important as it is important because these stereotypes and assumptions that we might have as students or emerging practitioners are more often than not unconscious yeah. as well and we um, may not realise that until we do that critical reflection and embed yeah. that as part of our practice. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I definitely think it was about taking a more genuine position and maybe prioritising that critical lens when we do reflect. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And to avoid um, harm. Yes. So yeah. to avoid creating harm um, for um, our First Nations people yeah. when we're working with them. Um, I, I liked um, sort of understandings. I don't think Deb spoke to it directly, but the idea of white fragility um, and the ways that uh, we can often, when we do make those assumptions and when it's called out that we've made those assumptions, sometimes as a non-Indigenous person, you can kind of feel sort of jarred or um, or feel like, I feel a bit sorry for yourself, I think. And so mm-hmm. often um, we need to be really conscious um, or students and practitioners need to be really conscious that if someone calls you out on on assumptions of racism that are from social conditioning, it's not about you 
being naughty or being punished or anything like that. It's about trying to change that, trying to change the system. And so if you do feel offended or um, that it's something that, oh, that was really harsh that that person said that to me, that's an opportunity to critically reflect and kind of go, oh, how could I change that? How could I change that about myself? Instead of feeling sorry for myself about it, how can I create change in the world so that um, not only me but other people get to realise that those that conditioning happens to all of us, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think um, Deb does say specifically in the previous episode that we all hold um, judgments and stereotypes about people and that is something that is quite natural to us as, as humans. So, um, yeah, and I... I can understand also how people may feel um, a little bad about themselves if they, I suppose, start to realise the assumptions that they do hold when reflecting. Um, but I think it's important to note that isn't a sign that you are a bad person or yeah. that isn't a reflection, I suppose, of your um, of who you are, no. um, but more so just acknowledging that those assumptions and stereotypes um, that we are conditioned to think are something that is real. Yeah. Um, and that's more, I suppose, the reason why we should act towards trying to change that or trying to shift um, the narrative maybe that we hold about certain people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And it can be liberating too when you realise that about yourself yeah. and then that shifts and then you're a different person. Like it's it can be transformational for people yeah. to be able to critically reflect in that way. Thank you. What a great conversation. <laughs> so where would you like to go now? What are some of the things that stood out to you, Joella, from Deb's From the episode? episode. Um Something that stood out to me was the way Deb talked about cultural safety, mm-hmm. um, I suppose, versus cultural competency or cultural awareness. Um, I really enjoyed that kind of critique and, and critical way that she um, seen that. And I liked that because I think at times when we talk about cultural awareness, it can be implied that cultural awareness and having education or having that awareness is kind of the final destination maybe Mm -hmm. um and so I enjoyed how Deb focused on cultural safety rather than cultural awareness because I think it is this reminder that we can be well educated and um expand our knowledge on working with First Nations people but I think cultural safety goes a step further and talks about acting um on that and, and using that knowledge to act and to influence change, I suppose. And I think that's kind of what she meant about um, Indigenous pedagogy being underpinned by advocacy and activism as well, I feel like. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. That was really well articulated, Carla. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Um, I do have some sort of information here from an article from Deb about um, cultural safety. Do you want me to just like yeah. read out a couple of those things yeah. and we'll and we'll talk about it a little bit more. Yeah. So this is from an article that Deb wrote in 2019 um, and it just talks a little bit about cultural safety. So it says, to effectively promote cultural safety, there needs to be a greater integration of Indigenous knowledges 
into social work curriculum. Where I work at QUT, we're doing that Yes, um, yeah. in social work and human services. So we, in our practice theories unit, we talk about Indigenous standpoint theory. So we have a colleague that we work with um, who, um, who has come to us Jenny Breeze, and she um, she does the lecture on um, cultural safety. Um, an effective curriculum should inform students of the historical role social workers played in the removal of Indigenous children from their families and the attempted assimilation of Indigenous knowledge into white understandings of right and wrong. So really speaking to the ways that social work and human services was implicated in um the colonising and and the and the child removal earlier policies and processes and, and things like that, and and really for us to be able to reconcile those things, to mm-hmm. be able to ensure that those things don't happen again, and mm-hmm. to to be able to critically shift the the dominant narratives around social work as a force for social control and have it as a force for emancipatory change. And so when I say emancipatory change, I mean freedom from oppression. So yeah. freeing people from the oppressions and the hist- historical um, things that have happened in the past and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, Deb often talks about privileging um, Indigenous voices in that. You know? Yes, yeah. And so, yeah, that's that's a little bit around that. Um, the other thing, unfortunately, the continued prevalence of Indigenous children being removed from their families indicates the ways in which Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples continue to be st- systematically racially discriminated against. And you were speaking a little bit about that in our earlier conversation um, where you spoke about um, the ways families are looked at differently. Did you want to yeah. speak to some of that, Joella? Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess um, I was talking about the ways uh, we as practitioners can construct ideas of family um, and kinship or relationships um, and construct, I suppose, these ideas around what the standards are for um, being a a good or um, normal family or Mm -hmm. um, that kind of thing. So, yeah, I think it's really interesting because we we have to acknowledge that power that we do have as practitioners and the ways that we can see things differently um, Mm -hmm. from each other and I suppose um, also the ways in which maybe our constructions about families and, and especially First Nation families and communities Mm. can be harmful if not using a critical lens. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, And having that um, because the basis of family understandings are based on westernised assumptions of what a family is. Yeah. And so and that can be really different to what a family might be in um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose um, I think the example I used in our previous conversation was that um, someone who might be non-Indigenous and and not practising with a critical lens might perceive um, a household with a large number of people as something that is unhealthy. Mm-hmm. Um, and whereas First Nations people, this is something that is quite normal in our culture. Um, 
Yeah, so I, I guess even just so, that example of And they would things. call it overcrowded. Yeah. An <laughs> overcrowded house yeah. instead of, well, this is a really rich community that lives here, you yeah. know? Yeah. yeah, and so I mm. guess flipping that and seeing the value in that, mm-hmm. um, like you're just saying, yeah, rather than seeing it as a deficit maybe, yeah. yeah. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Did you want to talk more about the advocacy and activism? Uh, I know that's a big part of Deb's pedagogy. Um, I might, before we do, I might just sort of mention a couple of other things about Deb's pedagogy because I really loved hearing Deb talk about what she did in her pedagogy. So she did say that she focuses with a Indigenous perspective and so that's at the forefront of her pedagogy. Uh, It recognises the experiences and struggles of First Nations people um, and that being central to uh, her pedagogy and so that recognises those impacts um, of the past and of history um, and of colonisation and dispossession and the ways that um, uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are Mm -hmm. racialised and that being subordinate to others. So that's part of her pedagogy. She talks about passion. She talks about empowerment uh, and it as an empowerment approach. And so when she talks about privileging Indigenous voices, mm-hmm. that's part of that empowerment of, uh, of Indigenous peoples. Um, and then the activism, she talked about the Black Lives Matter yes. um, movement. So did you want to talk a bit more about that? Or? Yeah, yeah. Um, I will say first um, just how important I think it is to really ground like Deb was saying, Indigenous pedagogy in the experiences and struggles um, of First Nations people and really honouring, I suppose, the history um, of First Nations people in this country. Um, I think, you know, some of those impacts uh, on First Nations families and communities from history are everlasting um, Mm. or, well, we are still very much today living through those impacts, living with those impacts, sorry. Um, So I do think that's really important um, to acknowledge and I love the idea of centering that um, in Indigenous pedagogy. Um, Yeah, so I, sorry, I will say that first just (laughs) because that felt um, important to say. And can I just add to that, like I know with my own boys and their experiences as... um, Aboriginal young people, now adults, um, and some of the um, historical stuff from from their family, like their great-grandmother was in a mission in North Queensland, you know. Um, They were removed from their mother um, for – not them. (laughs) They weren't removed from me. (laughs) But their dad was – their grandmother – um, had her children removed mm-hmm. um, for a period of time. And, and so their their father, not to make it any more confusing yeah. than I already have. <laughs> That's okay. I'm following along so far. <laughs> their father and um, their uncle, so when they were young boys, they had to live with a Christian family who wouldn't let the TV be on after 6 o'clock. They could only watch 
Christian television and if you're not coming from a Christian background and we know that with colonisation there has has been some um, connection to Christianity and, and the ways of yeah. sort of fixing Aboriginal people and that's, that's been a real struggle and that's been a struggle for their dad and that's been a struggle especially for one of my sons um, yeah. where that intergenerational trauma yeah. can exist and, and can cause lots of problems and so firsthand I feel like that I agree with you that that's really important for that recognition to happen yeah in yeah those perspectives yeah and definitely um I myself as well not to go too far into no. <laughs> my story but um my family um have also been impacted by you know those policies throughout history um my great great grandmother um, travelled by foot from Yarraba Mission mm-hmm. in far north Queensland because they were forcibly removed into Yarraba of their um, original country. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's still a story that we're still unpacking, um, yeah. like further details about that. But that in itself, like that she travelled by foot to Air, north Queensland. Oh um, and then that's where my great-grandmother um, or some of my great grandmothers was born. Um, one of my great grandmothers was born along the Herbert River, yeah. um, and so wow. yeah. So these parts of our stories um, that are really beautiful to hold, mm-hmm. but um, I suppose acknowledging those gaps in my own family story and stuff as well is um, is relevant to this conversation because that history that I'm still and, and my family are still. Mm. Uh, trying to piece together is um, a result of um, the policies put in place yeah. by, you know, our government, and um, and yeah, is is kind of always front of mind for me as um, a student who is going to be a human services practitioner yes. soon, um, and yeah, so always acknowledging that uh, role that I have to be critical and um, to do ethical work, I think, stems from, obviously, those impacts um, and that intergenerational trauma, like you were just saying, that your family. yeah, And the hardships that they've experienced, you get to have in the back of your mind when you're working with the people that you would be working with and, and knowing that we don't want to revisit that history we want to make change we want to make sure that that doesn't happen again yeah and I um Mm. I think you said something before about the removal of children and um that policy in itself and I just wanted to mention I watched a documentary called After the Apology Mm -hmm. yeah um which I thought was really interesting and basically is about how child removal works at the moment with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids through you know services I suppose and and processes that are originally maybe put in place Mm -hmm. um for good reasons but the ways in which those structural barriers can really discriminate I suppose against those families um so that was something that was really interesting because the modern world that we live in now is is different and has changed um but I think the importance to still be critical um is is still there and the importance of activism and um 
sort of advocating for policy change and all of those kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate That's it. Okay. Because I know our listeners would have got a lot out of hearing you talk about your mm. experience, I'm sure. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so when Deb did talk about activism, she talked about um, the deaths in custody. She mentioned that at the time, and, and we did that episode probably about um, six months ago now. Um, yeah. And right. so at the time, the deaths in custody was mm. 472. And now I, we looked yesterday um, in our group and it's up to 512. So that's an extra 40 deaths in custody just in that short period of time. So it's really devastating to hear that that, that's still happening. Still happening, yeah. And at the same time, it's really um, sort of hopeful to hear that activism is happening and we're continuing to fight that. And it's part of our our role as social workers and human service workers. Like we, we do have... Um, sometimes assumptions about social work and human services being about interpersonal work and Mm -hmm. about just connecting with people and and helping them feel better about their situation. However, we need to do way more than that. So we need to be social activists. We need to be agents for social change in our processes. And I think Deb spoke to that really well. Yeah, yeah. I think she said um, that her practice and teaching is underpinned by making change as well, that uh, activism and advocacy part of Indigenous pedagogy, I think, yeah, is really important. And we actually had a conversation, didn't we, about the difference between activism and advocacy? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and so activism is when you're actually doing something um, that is more than just walking alongside a person to create change in their life, you're actually doing it for social change in uh, the broader systems and structures of society. And so making sure that the, in social activism, it doesn't have to be that you're marching on the street, but yep. it, it can be that you're marching yeah. on the street. Like There's absolutely nothing wrong with that, and I would absolutely encourage it. But you can do micro-activism where you're actually creating change just simply by challenging someone's ideas and assumptions, yeah. challenging their white fragility you yeah. know, in, yeah. in the kindest possible way, Yeah, you know. Yeah. And um, whereas advocacy is when you're walking alongside someone. And uh, activism is a form of advocacy, mm-hmm. um, but when you're walking alongside someone and you're supporting them through the power that you have as a social worker and human service worker so that their voice can be privileged. Yeah. 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 So from here, where would you like to go? Like we are coming down to time (laughs) and and we've had this brilliant conversation, but I think we should talk a little bit more about the Sherberg Project. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's fine. So is there anything you particularly want to talk about? Um, I think I suppose my favourite thing about it, um, other than it, uh, really sounded like quite a versatile project, which mm-hmm. I did love. Like Deb mentioned, um, the different ways that they've engaged with community and different types of work, um, like recording elder stories or yeah. um, grant writing, um, or like she said about the the yarning circle and healing space. So I did love that. But other than that, I also loved that the students who are part of the project get to see the community at a more intimate level, and that because they they stay in the community, so yeah. they. So there's students on placement, yeah, 
like social worker, human services or um, masters of social work students on placement and they stay in Mergen and they stay in the community while they're doing their placement. It it would be for like a six-month period of time. And so the students work in different health facilities or youth justice facilities or Mm -hmm. work in in community placements and stuff like that. So while they're doing that, they do projects with community. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think they would get to see the community um, at a different angle and especially at a different angle for those who may not have been exposed, you know, to, mm. to these communities or to um, the ways in which Aboriginal families um, and communities come together. So I think that's really nice that they have the opportunity not to see it on not only on a day-to-day basis, but like you're saying, really embed themselves in the community by staying there yeah. throughout that project. Yeah. Absolutely. So they're embedded in community. Yeah. Um, yeah. Some of the things I really liked about um, when Deb was talking about the research that they did or the projects that they did with community, it was like the projects were community-led. Yes. And so the yeah. community brought, came up with the ideas of what the community needed. Yeah, exactly. Not the students. Yeah. And so they followed the lead of the community, which was really great. And yeah. the students walked alongside the community members, shared knowledge and space with them. Mm-hmm. But it was the community's ideas that mm-hmm. were brought forward in that. Uh, the focus on the change that the community wants to make and generating and building trust and relationships. So being embedded in the community and living in the community would have really helped for that development of trust and relationships. Yeah. yeah. Love that. The part that I really liked was the stories about the yarning circle um, and the healing space. And so Deb was talking about how in the Sherberg community, there's been a lot of um, youth suicides, which is absolutely devastating. And and so one of the ideas that came from the community was to develop this healing space Mm -hmm. and this yarning circle. And I think we sort of take for granted that we might hear the word yarning circle a lot of times, but I would have never thought of it as a place for just sitting and being and reflecting on your own thoughts yeah yeah Mm. um I love yeah I love (laughs) that I suppose my understanding of yarning uh, what a yarning circle is is you know a space to come together and speak but also listen I love that when usually when you have a yarning circle part of the protocol is to listen and and to listen to hear not to listen to respond um I think we would also know what that is as practitioners but I love yeah that that's really embedded in that process too yeah like you were saying can be used for different purposes such as to sit and speak and have discussions or to just sit and be and reflect and heal yeah. yeah. And when it is about decision making and things like that, it's about topics for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities and sort of enhancing those ideas. One of the things I, I just wanted to mention is that I really thought was great is it didn't matter who you are in the yarning circle. Yeah. It was equal. <laughs> yeah. And so yeah. Um, I love in our crew that I get to be part of. Uh, the group and I'm aware that I'm a lecturer and you guys are students Mm -hmm. but I feel like we kind of do that in our conversations is we do speak from a more equal as equal as we can when there's power in the room yeah yeah. but having that idea in yarning circles that it's equal and it doesn't matter if you're someone's boss or you're um, someone's mother or someone's child it's all equal in the room so that's great so I'm aware that we've 
spent a lot of time talking and I've loved this conversation. I had a couple of really quick comments I wanted to make about the advice that Deb has for people. And I thought this was really important for students and practitioners to hear in relation to if they, because I get a lot of students that come to me that say, I'm really interested in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, Mm -hmm. but I don't feel confident. Deb said, educate yourself. So don't expect Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to educate you and don't ask intrusive questions of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people or ask if you can observe them um, (laughs) and things like that because I think Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people historically have been studied and watched and observed and all of that too much way, yeah. way too much. Yeah. And um, one of the things Deb said is that if you're going to be part of a community, you, you need to give back to the community as well. If yeah. you're going to learn from something, you give back to the community. Yeah. Yeah. So that's another one that was really nice. Read work from Indigenous scholars. Mm-hmm. Um, Chelsea Watergo, has, who is the Professor of Indigenous Health at QUT, has a book titled Another Day in the Colony. Yeah. It's a new book. That would be a great start yeah. to learn about these things. Indigenous wisdoms and perspectives that are now being recognised in social work and human services and knowledge from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander authors are now more accessible and can give us all guidance for a more socially just and emancipatory society and approach to practice. Share knowledge that privileges the voices of First Nations people like the young man from Sherberg who is only 21 and is in the starting line, or was, because the state of origin was last night. Yeah. So he was in the starting lineup to play rugby league for Queensland at the state of origin. His name's Selwyn Cobbo. Yep. Um, and we want to privilege his voice because yep. um, that's a pretty amazing thing when you're 21 years old yeah. and, and you're doing that. And he's from this little Sherberg community (laughs) you know it's pretty awesome so that's it from me was there anything you wanted to finish off on Joella I would just reiterate what Deb was saying at the end of her conversation um, about educating yourself and taking that accountability and it's okay to not have all the answers but if you're asking and starting that engagement then I think you're taking the first steps and you're absolutely you're doing right by that Yeah. yeah Absolutely. Wonderful. So thank you for chatting with us, Joella. Um, It's been such a rich discussion and a real privilege to have this conversation with you. And thank you to our listeners for listening to us. And bye for now. Thank you. Bye. like to keep up with any of our socials and to continue listening to future episodes please follow us on instagram that's critical conversations the number four sw